You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by listeners like you, supporters on Patreon. Join us today at patreon.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 465, Alliances. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we take a look at an episode of Star Trek, examining it for the morals, meanings, and messages, and trying to determine if it stands the test of time. This week, Alliances, the one where warring factions in the Delta Quadrant make for strange bedfellows. I'll return shortly with trivia, but first Norman will tell you how to ally with us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek. Drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com and join us on Twitter and Facebook at Mission Log Pod. While you're at it, leave us a review and rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And please remember your comments could be used on Mission Log or Engage on the Roddenberry YouTube channel. And now here is Maj Champion, I mean John Champion, with this week's trivia. All right, we got an Alliance's short trivia, lots of guest stars. So we have an episode written by Jerry Taylor. And as a producer on Voyager, Jerry didn't have a ton of writing credits, but clearly her hand is in much of the show's overall development. In this case, she was springing off from the work that Ken Billard had done before in shaping up who the Kazon were and how they operate. This episode is number six out of the 14 for which Jerry will get a writing credit. It was directed by Les Landau, for longtime TNG and DS9 director. We're about in the middle of Les's contributions to Voyager. Not as many, just nine total on the series. We will catch up with him again closer to the end of the season. And of course, most of these assignments overlapped with his directorial work on DS9. All right, I, I told you there's a lot of guest stars. There are a lot of guest stars. Here we go. We have a few returning guests this week, notably Martha Hackett as Seska and Anthony DeLongis as Kala. Now, he thought this was the end of the road for his character when he saw an earlier draft of the script. But in a rewrite, Jerry Taylor held on to the Kazon to see another day. So we will get more of Anthony DeLongis. Let's see, returning to Star Trek after a few years is Chip Lucia. He plays the trade leader Mabus, and we met him way back in our TNG coverage in Mission Log number 220 with the episode Man of the People. He will be back once more in Enterprise. Neelix's contact, Tursa, is played by Larry Cedar, who previously had a guest role in the DS9 episode Armageddon Game. We will also see him on Enterprise in a few years. Of course, very recently in the episode Maneuvers, we met the Kazon Jal Surat, and here we have him again, played by John Gegenhuber. We will see him again at the end of the season, but in a different role. Yet another returning guest player is Simba Smith. Here she is, the exotic dancer in the bar on Sobras. Uh, but we saw her before in the DS9 episode where she was playing the Dabo girl being egregiously harassed by Quark. That, of course, was Prophet and Lace. 
New to us, though not really new, is Mirren E. Willis, who plays the Kazon Reddick here, uh, the one who takes a clandestine call from Voyager, that one. We will see Reddick again very soon, but Mirren did actually appear once before in an uncredited role on TNG as a Klingon. Now, the person making that clandestine call is crewman Michael Jonas, played by Raphael Sparge. And he's with us for a total of five episodes. Now, you may not know the name, uh, but you have definitely seen Raphael in any number of places. He started acting at the age of four. He was on a number of episodes of Sesame Street. He made his Broadway debut at the age of 16. One of his very first movie roles was in Risky Business as Joel's friend Glenn. He has done voice work on a number of Star Wars projects. And just within the last year, you could catch him on the series 1883, Gaslit, and Dahmer. His credits are far too many to mention here. That's what IMDb is for. Go check him out. And we do have another brand new crewman on Voyager. That would be Ensign Hogan, who certainly makes his opinions known to Captain Janeway. This was meant as a one-off role, but the producers liked actor Simon Billig enough that Hogan appears in six more shows. Simon is from Birmingham, England, and this role is pretty early in his professional on-camera career. After Voyager, some of his genre credits include Dark Skies, Time Cop, the TV series, and two episodes of Babylon 5. Was it better when the Kazon were maneuvering, or when they're forming alliances? Hold that thought. Prologue. Voyager is having a rough day. One of many, but this one particularly so. The Kazon attacks are coming more quickly and more deadly than ever, with ship systems taking a beating. Casualties are growing too, and one loss in engineering specifically, Kurt Bandera, has affected Milana and Chakotay, their old Maquis crewmate. It's then that Chakotay proposes a bold new plan to Captain Janeway. They have to change their approach with the Kazon if they hope to survive. Act 1. Some of the crew assembled to memorialize Bandera, and at the end, one of the other former Maquis, crewman Hogan, confronts Captain Janeway. Maybe it is time to give the Kazon what they want. The Federation is 70,000 light-years away, so what do they care if Voyager gives away a replicator and a transporter? How many more people need to die? Captain Janeway is clear and unbending. She will destroy Voyager before letting it or their technology fall into Kazon hands and tip the balance of power in the Delta Quadrant. Afterward, Chakotay catches up to the captain and makes a similar case as Hogan. Maybe they do need to re-examine Starfleet protocols because their situation is so unique. Maybe it's time to make an alliance with the Kazon. Janeway is taken aback, and she seeks counsel with Tuvok, who has his own way of looking at the situation. He's reminded of Spock, first suggesting an alliance between the Federation and the Klingon Empire. On a smaller level, he illustrates a perfect idic moment of two of his flowers becoming stronger together when he grafted them, becoming something unique in the whole galaxy. Sufficiently inspired, Janeway addresses the senior officers with this new plan. She will reach out to form an alliance of some sort with a Kazon faction. 
Neelix jumps in that he knows a guy on Sobras who could help them. Then Harry Kim chimes in jokingly that they could call up Seska. Not the right idea for Chakotay, but for Janeway? Sure. Seska could lead them to form an alliance with the Kazan Nistrum because, after all, Seska has been trying to form alliances of her own. Act 2. On the planet Sobras, Neelix finds his Kazon contact in a seedy bar. Their meeting doesn't lead to the intended outcome with Jal Tersa having a couple of Kazon goons take Neelix away. Meanwhile, Maj Kala and Seska meet with Janeway and Tuvok. Janeway proposes that she will ally with the Nistrum and in exchange will offer food and medical supplies. Kala has something else in mind, though, an exchange of personnel with some of his crew on Voyager and vice versa. Janeway adamantly refuses, and the meeting comes to an end. Back on Sobras, Neelix has been dragged into a cave system where he is shocked to find people, not Kazon, but other aliens, families of them, babies included, hiding out. Act 3. The people Neelix is in custody with are Trabe. One of them, Mabus, introduces himself and explains that their ship was attacked by Kazon and they've been held for five days so far. Some who weren't killed in the attack were taken away for questioning and never seen again. They're counting on escape, though. They got a message out to another Trabe ship. What he wants from Neelix now is an alliance of their own. Soon enough, they have their chance when a Trabe rescue force breaks them out and Neelix runs to the surface with Mabus and his group. Meanwhile on Voyager, tensions are high as the initial talks with Seska and Maj Kala failed. In engineering, Hogan brings it up with Milana, who is quick to defend Janeway and put him right back in his place. The captain has other worries to contend with, though, as Neelix has not shown up for his rendezvous, leading her to order a course directly for Sobras. Before they can leave the area, a huge Kazan armada shows up with weapons powered to face down Voyager. Act 4. Before weapons can be fired, a hail comes over the view screen. It's Neelix with Mabus on board his Trabe vessel. Yes, the Kazan steal everything, including ships. They invite themselves over for dinner, during which Mabus tells a serious and sympathetic story. He was just a young boy, growing up at a time when the Trabe mistreated the Kazan as prisoners, growing their resentment until they violently took their freedom back. Mabus was one day playing in a field and the next day orphaned in space. He feels with the Kazan, and he is also aware of the threat they pose. Elsewhere on Voyager, crewman Jonas former Maquis himself, makes a private, unauthorized call to one of the Kazon, seeking a chat with Seska. The Kazon will pass along the message. Now Janeway is in the uncomfortable position of having to pick sides. The Kazon have shown themselves to be hostile to Voyager over and over. The Trabe were once an advanced civilization who practically enslaved the Kazon until they were defeated. After a generation, have they changed? Janeway is willing to put her trust in them just long enough to get out of Kazan territory and perhaps help the Trabe find a new home. But Mabus has a bolder plan. With their combined might, they could have the Kazan leaders join them for a negotiation for peace. The news comes as a surprise to Maj Kala and Seska. He's infuriated that his enemies have teamed up. She's mad that he brought it on himself by losing the negotiation with Janeway in the first place. So what will they do? Kala will go. He'll use it for recon. 
see what the other mages are thinking, and gain a tactical advantage to wipe out the trade once and for all, Voyager will be the trophy. Before the arrangements can be set, though, Neelix has some recon of his own. He was on Sobrus and got wind of a Takrit spy making a sketch of the conference room. It's everyone's best guess that someone, a Kazon leader, is planning to sabotage the peace talks. Janeway is determined to go forward, with transporters locked just for safety, and keeping an eye on anyone who tries to leave the negotiation table early. Act 5 Neelix and his Kazan contact, Jal Tursa, are first on the scene in the conference room on Sobras. Tursa is nervous, but soon enough welcomes the other Majas who were there for the negotiation. The talks get off to a rocky start. Captain Janeway makes the initial overtures to explain the desire for peace in the quadrant, but the Kazan in attendance are, understandably, skeptical. Why should they trust her? especially after she rejected Cullo's proposal, and now that she has aligned with their sworn enemy, the Trabe. The other Ks on at the table get it. The Trabe want peace only for themselves, and having Voyager in their camp is a show of power. As the talks break down, Mabus rather forcefully suggests a recess while he and Janeway can talk privately. As they rise from the table, the room starts to shake violently. Mabus is pleased to leave, grow more serious, and Janeway sees what's going on. She tells them all to take cover as she calls Voyager for an emergency beam-out. Just as they do, a Trabe ship opens fire on the room, destroying it and nearly taking out the Kazon leadership had they not gotten out of the way. Back on board Voyager, Janeway admonishes Mabus for setting a trap before quickly sending him back to his ship. Now Voyager is more vulnerable than ever. They are alone and have made plenty of enemies. Janeway reminds her crew that even if they are in a part of space where there are few rules, they must stick to their own. The end. Well, that was a fantastic recap, John. I know that we're getting into these episodes of Voyager that are starting to become like very dense, like in their storytelling and uh, just being able to, you know, uh, create a summary of uh, of that brevity, but still the detail. I thought was very, very well done. Let's start with uh, the cinematic opening. <laughs> I loved the cinematic opening. It had such it created such great tone for this episode. And I'm sure that wasn't easy on the effects budget with like exploding Kazon ships. No, no. Lots of firepower. Think about how bold artistically they're getting with their teaser segments. You know, last week it was the robot waking up in space seeing Voyager and it just kind of told you everything that you needed to know about what was happening as soon as you saw him see himself in engineering on that slab uh, and here we are with another kind of bold choice to do this big effect sequence and just get you in right on the action I thought it was cool and I love it when a story can start in the middle like that and just kind mm-hmm. of dazzle you for uh, a couple of minutes it was it was very good I, I got to say, there is this line that um, when we're uh, memorializing Bandera, Ed Chicote says, suddenly this man I'd never seen before comes out of nowhere. And I thought, same, Chicote, same. I've, I've never <laughs> seen this guy before either. But no, but, but really, I, I had this like Mandela effect moment with Bandera. And I, I had to look him up and go like, well, wait, we have seen him before, but... I didn't remember a thing about him, so I'm glad that that forced me to go look 
had this, you know, I had been watching this in real time um, back when this premiered, and there's no, you know, IMDb or Memory Alpha to pull from. I'd be like, did we see that guy before? Okay, I'm just going to take Chakotay's word for it. <laughs> Are we in that position now where we we've seen some significant? extra crew members like Dolby, for example, mm-hmm. you know, who, you know, took the, uh, you know, the end of uh, Chakotay's Just fist, right in the face, uh, you know, took it. Yeah. very effectively, yeah, yeah. right? But at the same time, though, I don't want this to be like, you know, the the story that has just basically like every Skywalker character like return, you know, because that's just a, you know, a, a handful of characters that you like, but... You do kind of get attached to some of them, like Dolby. Yeah, right? well, Dolby, well, and so, of course, you know, our favorite gym rat, I mean, Baxter is, he's probably, right. he missed the ceremony because he was working out so hard. So that's why he that's wasn't true. there. But but had he been there, I think that would have been a very powerful moment. You know, he, he was literally like punching phasers back at the Kazon. That's what, that's he, was what he was doing. Right. Yeah. He could have just, yeah. he could have come in with like a towel around his neck or something. That would have been fine. <laughs> but yeah, but no, I mean, to but, that point, like, yeah. it would be cool to get to know some of these people who are memorable and then really let them evolve. But that's just not the nature of the storytelling at the time. I know. know. And it, and it would have been interesting for Chakotay to have eulogized somebody like mm-hmm. that. That we've met, yeah. you know, that had an actual arc. Uh, but I, I thought that the uh, the eulogy was very, you know, it was it was nicely done. Mm-hmm. But the thing about the eulogy that I loved the most was the actual use of an actual brass bosun's whistle. Yes, nice little detail. Yeah. As much as I love Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan, mm-hmm. when Admiral Kirk appeared on board the Enterprise for his inspection, they used a almost kind of like a digital whistle, you know, something that was just a little too high tech and, and it's something for nicholas meyer too i thought that was a little odd for him since he he was known for putting like these antiquated effects mm-hmm. like into this his movies you know mm-hmm. like the book you know like the glasses yeah so i'm glad that this made it into a 24th century setting yeah the boson's Same. whistle mm-hmm. yeah okay so i'm gonna make a big deal about it. this is part one of a sliding scale that's gonna get all the way into discussion okay so this is your first fair warning. Janeway says at the eulogy to Hogan, I appreciate your concerns, crewman, but let me make it absolutely clear. I'll destroy the ship mm-hmm. before I turn any part of it over to the Kazon. And then looks at Chakotay says, so that's how the McKee would do it. Hmm? Maybe at the funeral where so many emotions are raw, you don't flex so hard as the captain yeah. in front of all the crewmen who are hurting right now. Yeah. Yeah. Small observation on my part. Maybe it pays dividends. Maybe it doesn't. That's <laughs> that's a uh, – yeah, instead of like a, an I'll turn this bus around moment, it's an I will mm-hmm. blow this bus up moment. <laughs> that is right. – yeah, that's pretty hardcore, uh, Janeway, and uh, your choice of location to do that. Okay, but that said um, – you know, look, we're starting with the premise that Chakotay is one of our main characters. He is a hero on the show. And a moment like this mm-hmm. should be very obvious. But I really like the way his and Janeway's dialogue is written, performed when they have that disagreement. So by the time they get out into the corridor and they go to the uh, they go to the turbo lift, he is respectful. He is very clear. He never loses his cool. And that plays as a good contrast to someone like Hogan. So I, th- I right. you know, when Janeway can lose her cool little moment because she's being confronted like that, it takes a good first officer. It takes a good counterpart like Chakotay to say, hey, we're going to continue this conversation, but let's do this in a different way. And I, I thought he was quite strong. But you know it's about to get real when the captain stops the turbo lift. Watch out. Oh, yeah. That's- yeah. 
that Starfleet for things are getting yes. real. Yeah, yeah, right? it is. You better yeah. believe it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I'll get this um, into this further in my discussion points, but I really do want to give credit where credit is due. And Robert Beltran was perfect mm-hmm. in this moment. Probably perfect the entire episode, but I'll get to that yeah. later. But perfect in this moment where he is the sounding board finally for Janeway, you know, who I think that this is a little bit of maybe a, a foreshadowing, but Janeway's a little rattled, mm. you know, by her own crewman. And maybe that will affect her in certain ways later on just to show that that can happen to a captain at any given any given Sunday. Yeah. I don't know if it's Sunday, you know, in their uh, – hey. You know, uh, when this happens. Space Sunday. We don't know. There. Uh, speaking of perfect <laughs> moments, perfect scenes, I thought the scene with Tuvok and Janeway in his quarters was really mm-hmm. good. Uh, we, we haven't had a lot of those moments in Voyager yet, but when we get those, I think they're really strong. Her reaction to the story about the flower is perfect. Acting is reacting. Her reaction there is right. terrific, and it is a great showing, not telling moment, because the story could be about anything. It really could, but just seeing her absorb it, I thought was a great moment. And again, it's like a wonderful reaction between kind of like her two senior advisors, Tuvok being now more of like this wonderful spiritual advisor and Chakotay being more of kind of like this, uh, like more of like the protocol advisor. Mm-hmm. But what I loved about Tuvok's story mm-hmm. is, and, and we just had this, you know, we in, in the previous episode in, in prototype, we had a reference to data, mm-hmm. you know, a nostalgic mm-hmm. reference to data. Now from Tuvok, we have a nostalgic reference to Spock. And the beginning of the Kittimer Accords, which happened in Star Trek VI. Yeah. You know, right. When he's talking yeah. about this story about the visionary named Spock who recommended the alliance between the Federation and Klingon Empire. I don't think that any fan out there that has studied as much as we have would uh, – this fact would be lost on them that this was basically what happened with the explosion of the moon of Kronos. Yeah. Yeah. So I love that 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 that's in there, but it's not overly done, but just enough to remind you that, yes – there is something that could be salvaged from this moment. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought that was excellent as well. Uh, I love Neelix in the last few episodes. He's written, I think, the way that we've wanted Neelix to be written all along, yes. where there is a certain sense of comedic timing and a certain sense of aloofness. But when the chips fall, he is doing what he was kind of conscripted or employed to do, and that's be their navigator through Kazon Space and the Delta Quadrant. Yeah. Yeah, it was good Neelix moment. Speaking of comic relief, I do have to say that they perfectly underplayed the the callback to Seska saying to Kala, yes, Maj. Like, you know, yeah. because they did play it up in maneuvers quite a bit. But, but this is just a little tip of the hat, not overplayed at all. Thought it was nice. We haven't done an, an album name drop in a while, so maybe yes, Maj is our album drop. For I think day. that's good. That's fair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, Maj. John, I have a serious question to ask you. And I have a serious question to ask the audience. Are there always exotic dancers in every single CD bar, in every single galactic quadrant? Just curious. Yeah, you know, it seems that way. I guess it's one of those 90s TV shorthand methods of letting you know this is a CD bar. I mean, look, they could all be very nice in there. You know, we don't know that, but they're just telling you this is a CD bar. So, yeah, yeah, right. I don't know. <laughs> By the way, can we talk about the uh, the grenade that the Trabe used to dispense with the Kazan Guard on Sobras? To me, 
that was hilarious. <laughs> it looks it looks <laughs> like this rubber ball, and then the guard just the way that it shot, the guard just very gently gets his foot near it, and the thing explodes, mm-hmm. rocking him back. But it's a small enough explosion that everyone else is okay. I, and they even did part of that like in slow mo. I just I I know what they were going for. I know exactly what they were going for. In execution in this episode, it just was not good, and it made me laugh every time. What was the name of that French character in Top Secret? Was it Deja Vu? That that sounds familiar. I think I've heard of him before. Yes. And they looked at the grenade that was thrown in the resistance office, you know, the the resistance window, (laughs) and he's like, Grenade! (laughs) Same thing. (laughs) That's what this scene was in this episode. Um, So... Janeway has such she has such resolve to you know to create this alliance you know with Kala and the Kazon. It's the misogyny mm-hmm. that causes the diplomacy to break down. And then I and I love the like the death stares that <laughs> that Seska's giving Kali. She's like, "Are you serious right now? We have everything that we want. Oh my God, you're going to ruin this because you are being." a misogynistic jerk yeah this is what's going on right well now. and you know that comes back uh, at the very end with uh, uh when maj kala is addressing the rest of the group of the kazan saying look are we going to let these terms be dictated by a trade and a woman mm-hmm. you know the the one he's calling out for the faction the other is just calling out for being a woman but what i love i love uh this exchange because you have maj kala saying i could not let the negotiations be dictated by that woman and seska saying one day that attitude will be your undoing a i hope so <laughs> and b yes um that was one of the better like again not not played super over the top but one of the best kala seska scenes i thought so far uh, I think in maneuvers, I think maybe Anthony and Martha were just kind of figuring out how to what their chemistry was. Mm-hmm. But in this episode, their chemistry was really well. You know, they had great connection. Yeah. They had great chemistry in yeah. this one. It, yeah. it felt less over the top. You know, it, for mm-hmm. a couple of characters who are already over the top. You know, uh, right, okay. Right. And then boom, big reveal, the big soap opera moment: the child that she is carrying is Kala's, <sighs> not Chicote's. Okay, like, what? All right. But isn't okay. it? But isn't it? Well, that's what she but told him. Oh my god! Uh, remember, I'm carrying your child. Okay, all right. So that that's that's where we are now. <laughs> that that Cardassian manipulation, mm-hmm. like Gene, is is strong. Mm-hmm. You know, in Seska. Yeah. I know that there's a lot going on in this episode, and it's very exciting. Mm-hmm. And you have this negotiation. You have all these factions, you know, trying to figure out how they're going to like maintain peace in the Delta Quadrant by all these unholy alliances, but. Someone please explain to me, how does a Trabe attack ship enter atmosphere when all of these other ships are in orbit? The, you yeah. know, the Voyager, yeah. all these other Trabe ships, the Kazon ships, and not get picked up by any sensors at all? <laughs> I, that whole sequence, I wonder, like, was that the best way to try to carry that off? Because they're making the plans and like, okay, should we send the attack ship that uh, can get by sensors but creates a small earthquake about 30 seconds before anything happens. Yeah, let's use mm-hmm. that one. <laughs> I'm pretty sure like Godfather 3 came before this, so there were like shades of the five families or how many families there were in Atlantic City that got taken out by Joey Zaza. There's also another scene from another movie that's related to Star Trek <laughs> that I can't jump the timeline for that happened for. I'm just saying 
what is going on with the sensors of all those other ships? The Marsh Squad is back, and they're probably not going to get together for a pizza party after this. We will get right back to alliances, but first a word from this week's sponsor, and that means you. That means all of you who have joined us at patreon.com slash mission log, and by doing so, get all the perks and benefits that are included there. Tell them what they've won, Norm. Well, what you've won is listening to more of us talk about Patreon, but also just talking about Patreon brings a smile to our face because it's our community that we have worked so very hard to cultivate and to grow and to allow people to share their fandoms in this very safe, very respectful space. And if you are one of our subscribers, talk to one of your friends who isn't a subscriber and tell them all that they need to know about having fun with all of you having fun with all of us. You know, just today, we made some changes, made some expansions over at the Mission Log Discord, which is truly just a, a supportive and, and engaging place for all of our fans to chat, not just about Trek, but everything else. So just today, uh, thank you to you, we added a SpyFi channel which is already exploding with spy gadgets and cool stuff that just, you know, feeds more of my interest. I mean, mm-hmm. you already have a food channel in there for me. We got that. We got all kinds of stuff. We got 60s sci-fi up through 80s, 90s and beyond. Uh, so there's a little bit of everything for everybody. And the best part is that you can get all of that for as little as a dollar a month. And if you sign up for the whole year, we even take a discount off of that. Now, higher support tiers, you get some exclusive swag that is only for our Patreon members, but everybody gets access to Discord, and everybody gets early access to our shows and things like weekly live chat, so we can come talk about that week's episode of Mission Log and so much more as the Mission Log family grows. So again, that location is patreon.com slash mission log. Join us there, and you will very shortly be in the Mission Log Discord. We look forward to seeing you there, patreon.com slash mission log. All right, Norman, I I don't want to tip too much of my feelings on the episode here because there are things that, you know, maybe one way or the other pull my interest uh, or less so. I, you know, I said it before here and I've said it before, like in our uh, in our discord chats that I'm just not finding that I'm really engaged by Kazon storylines. Like every time they pop back, I'm like, really more of these. Haven't we left them behind already? Mm -hmm. But I actually like the approach here. There's something about the way this story just feels like it starts in the middle, and we're actually building towards something. We're facing the problem instead of just saying, like, oh, that's a nuisance, and we'll get away again, and then they just show up out of nowhere. Something that is rare in Voyager is where we face down having sustained problems, and we have long-term consequences, and then the need to adjust strategy. Like, that. that's... That's kind of what I've always wanted from the beginning. And every now and then you get a taste of that. You get a taste of either something very sentimental, like we want to get back home. How do we do that? Or something that really faces the reality of where we are. And we can't just shape these guys when we want to. So this one, at least in premise, hits a sweet spot for me where – you know, I may not love the development of the Kazon such as they are, such as we've gotten them, but I actually love the position that this puts Voyager in and having to face something important. 
you know, the interesting thing about the Kazon, I think, would they be more interesting if, uh, or would they be less interesting if Seska wasn't an ally with them? Because that's when they really kind of started to take a little bit more of a of a prominent role in in threatening Voyager and threatening Janeway. Because now they have the uh, they have the tactical advantage of her of her intelligence, and of course she's manipulating them for her own reasons. But I think why they are so effective in this particular story because I think they're actually forcing Janeway into making one of two decisions, neither of which are very easy for her. And you can see her, you can see the logic of these decisions break down throughout the course of this episode, because I do Mm. think that at least the way that it was written, at least the way that she's written, and I have to take that at face value because that's all I know of her character right now. Mm -hmm. I ask the question, I ask it to you, I ask it to the audience, does Janeway have a blind side when it comes to the Federation principles or the Federation's principles? Mm. I want to bring up two specific quotes uh, where I I see that Janeway right now is, I don't think she's consistent with the message that she had at the beginning versus the message that she had towards the middle. So when she's trying to negotiate with Kulla, and this is after listening to Chakotay and to Tuvok, and for her to be able to say, I need to look at the bigger picture to find a way to get my crew home. That's my responsibility that I promised them since caretaker. Kala says, I won't have a woman dictate terms to me. And then Janeway says, mm. Kala, I found the idea of an alliance with you distasteful. I was willing to explore the possibility, but now I see my instincts were dead on. Done. That's what mm. shifts her from her position. Versus mm-hmm. when Janeway told Kala this at the negotiations, I found the goals of the trade to be compatible with our own. I represent an organization which is devoted to peaceful coexistence among people. The trade want nothing more than that. How do you vet that with one meeting? How can she be so trusting after one meeting? So I have to ask, is there, is there something in the way that she sees the trade who aren't a certain look, a certain mm. way of being versus the Kazon who she already knows? Or is she so willing to you know, is she so willing to compromise her values because of Star's Fleet's principles that she tried up to a point to be able to get her crew home to negotiate with the enemy that she knows or just give up that and say, you know what, the Trabe, I like them. They look compatible to me. I think I'll do business with them. I think that's hypocritical. I will call it out on the carpet. I think Janeway's <laughs> being a hypocrite. Well, I, all right. So let, let me defend Janeway a little bit here. We have a history with the Kazon. We have a history of the Kazon constantly taking shots at Voyager every time that they can. They also have the tactical advantage of Seska, who knows how Voyager works mm-hmm. and may not have the technology, but at least understands it. So every run-in with the Kazon has been has almost resulted in the destruction of Voyager. That that's why we open this show the way we do is just seeing them take hit after hit after hit. Now, so at least she's dealing with a history there with the Kazon that she understands that the rest of her crew have been through. And I got to hand it to her that even at the beginning of the show, she is reluctant to hear the idea of an alliance, but then in walks Chakotay, and I, I love this line a lot. Maybe we have to examine Starfleet's principle with a cold eye and ask ourselves if they're really applicable here. And then I love this. Isn't there something in between your position and his, meaning between Janeway and Hogan, right. after Hogan right. called her out, right? So I, I like the idea that, yeah, it, it is 
a very hard thing to break out of your preconceived understanding of the enemy. Mm -hmm. Particularly that enemy has been battering you with every chance they get, right? But at least, at least they're able to wear her down a little bit to listen. Okay, listen one more time. Now listen again to Tuvok. Take this to heart. Let's try. Let's try it. So uh, do we do we give her a little bit of credit for trying, at least when it came to the Kazon? Okay, but, 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 and I, mm-hmm. I, I see where you're going with this too, because the other thing that I picked up on was Neelix literally spelling out the Trabe ability to spin their own narrative there about what was happening on their planet with the Kazon. <laughs> to the extent, okay, wait a minute, to the extent that nobody else in the Quadrant knew or wanted to know the reality of what was happening there, and that line comes just before Janeway makes the decision to trust them. That, that I think, is the biggest uh, sort of nail in the coffin when it comes to uh, kind of shattering uh, uh, Janeway's principle here. Because I, I, I can understand the hesitance to do anything with the Kazon. I truly can. And I can understand her disbelief at what Kahlo is proposing, although mm-hmm. she was ready to just end it right there and not say, let me think about it, let me come back to you. Of course, then the show could have been five hours long instead of 45 minutes, you know? So that, that could have kept going and going. But it is interesting that Neelix is the one who spelled it out. You know, yeah. that the thing is with Janeway, and I don't really want to belabor too much at this point, but mm-hmm. she's so ready to let the negotiations for something that she knows is beneficial for her crew break down so quickly. And I, mm-hmm. I felt that this was contrary to the Janeway that we've, that we've learned about that we've gotten to know because just, just seems like, you know what? She'll at least hear out all sides before she makes her decision. I, I find that very diplomatic of her, but for some odd reason, Kala can get to her to the point where she's like, you know what? I don't even want to hear it anymore. I'm going to put mm-hmm. my crew's needs aside because I just don't want to do I don't want to do any business with you. But she knows what she's getting into with Kala and Seska. She knows that she can't trust them, but she decides to trust an unvetted ally instead mm-hmm. of trusting the enemy that she knows. At least she knows what she's going to get from dealing with Kala. She doesn't know what she's going to get with the Trabe. And I have to say it, the Trabe are kind of like these very noble kind of, for lack of a better term, kind of like white-centric race, mm-hmm. right? As opposed to kind of like this gritty, dirty people that the Kazon are. So I'm going to put, I mean, I know that it, this doesn't sound, it's not framed in the best way, but there is something like, you know what? I'm going to trust this ethnically clean-looking group versus this not kind of ethnically clean looking group right okay well in defense of janeway though i mean so again she has been she and her ship and her crew have been beat to hell over and over and over again by the Kazon. so you're saying if you're forced with this question of do i go with the devil i know or the devil i don't know are are you making a calculated decision to go with the devil that you do know where, look, I'll come back to Janeway's 
words when she decides to go with the Trabe. She says, I believe that people have a capacity to change. And that's just referring to the Trabe versus their history. She only has to go on what Mabus has told her about 30 years ago, or 30 plus years ago, right? It's always been Starfleet's policy to deal with new species on a basis of openness and trust. Here's the important part, until proven otherwise. She did not get proven otherwise, they did not get proven otherwise, until it was too late. You know, mm-hmm. there, there was some intelligence, but not good intelligence, and sure enough, her tune changed as soon as they were revealed for what their actual plan was. But here they were coming to her and saying, we want peace. We want to go find our own home world. We just want out of this as badly as you do. So if that's what they're telling you, what do you do? Trust but verify? Yes. I mean, I mean that's, that, that's what I asked you know. about the question. Is like, you know, does she have a blind side based on the Federation principles? Chakotay, who has been so expertly written in this episode as a voice of yeah. reason. He's not saying that you should trust every single person that you come across or make alliances with every single race that you come across. But he, what he is saying is like, at least entertain the the option of being a little bit more creative with your decision-making processes. That's what he, you know, that was, you know, um, paraphrasing the quote. It's like Starfleet isn't allowing you or your Starfleet mm-hmm. training isn't allowing you the opportunity to look at a situation creatively in order to do the one thing that you promised everybody you would do, and that's to get them home. So, again, it's like the Vidians. You know, she got burned twice. Do you think she would actually treat with them again? Maybe or maybe not. It depends on what you need, not mm-hmm. what you believe is the principle that you need to defend. And I think that that's where we are in the Delta Quadrant. Like, she's not going to get the need, you know, for, she's not going to get the the diplomacy that she's probably used to in dealing with like federation allies or 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 potential federation allies in a space that's safer for her to treat that way so she needs to work more on instinct and i think her instinct was right with the kazon and it's only kala and seska that are really the threat the other kazon leaders she might be able to actually negotiate with what she did at the end Maybe, maybe, but I mean, but but what is her? What is the other option other than you're told you can come to this negotiating table and you can try to make a deal? Like that, that that ultimately is what she wants. That that's ultimately, you know, the Starfleet way is let's all get in a room and talk about our problems. She didn't know until there's a gunship facing them down that oh, by the way, this is a trap, you know. And then and what does she do? Well, okay. That failed. We have to get the hell out of here. I mean, you can blame her for going with the wrong side, but she was intentionally deceived by that side. I think that's where Chakotay was really, again, I think that he was kind of like the secret MVP of this episode because he's the one saying like, look, look at all of the options that are available to you. I don't think he's Mm -hmm. saying like, you know, take this option because it looks better or it's the optics are better on this option with the Trabe. Trabe optically look better mm-hmm. because the Trabe, and I'll say it again, and you can send me all the emails, the Trabe looked the way that I believe Janeway thinks an ally in the Federation space should look. 
they yeah. seem oh yeah they're, you know, they're they're polished they pour wine at dinner they uh, yeah i mean right. clearly the show is is making them out to be something that they're not right you know they they have not learned the history lesson that they should have mm-hmm. and they're they're out for revenge as well i wonder if the only sort of clean way out of this is that if Janeway were to have said to Mabus, like, look, we're not aligning with anybody until we all sit down at the table. We're we're not throwing in at all. We're not promising anything until we're at that table. However, if she had done that, would they have gotten the intel? I mean, I guess Neelix is a secret weapon here. Would they have gotten the intel to then be on their feet about getting out of there when the gun starts firing? Yeah. I mean, and that's where I think that we probably missed just a little bit more of an opportunity to get more of the Neelix that we wanted, because Mm -hmm. that would have been a great character moment for him, an arc for him. And one of those kind of, I told you so moments, but not in a, you know, in in an obnoxious kind of way from him at the end to allow him to reflect with Janeway at the end, the way that she did with Torres in Prototype, you know, that you see Timmy moment without again being obnoxiously overt. But I do think that in some way, I just felt she was so easy to be a little heavy handed with her principles at the beginning with Hogan. And I really mm-hmm. do have a problem with like how overt she was in such a sensitive space in as a wake of a funeral mm-hmm. to tell her like, I would rather blow up this ship than to negotiate with enemies. <laughs> And then negotiate yeah. blindly with an ally that was never vetted and then ends up betraying her at the end. As a captain of a starship whose sole interest is to get her crewmen home and her and her ship home, I felt that she was a little too naive in dealing with the trade. I think what's nice is that we get two arcs out of this. The first arc is Janeway being the kind of captain who isn't so rigid, who can listen to the advice of her crew, who can absorb another perspective, even if she's stubborn at the beginning. But there's arc number one, is they they talk to her enough, she sees the other side, she gets to uh, adjust her command approach, right? The other arc is, I screwed up. (laughs) so now i have to do what's best for my crew to protect them and get out of here and hope that the trabe and the k's on both are constantly in the rearview mirror and not facing us down with their weapons drawn so did she learn a lesson Uh, well i guess that remains to be seen as we go further along in the delta quadrant memo to neelix Forgot to specify, we want to form alliances with non-horrible people in the future. That was a fantastic discussion, John. Uh, it's it's rare but wonderful when, when you and I see things from a different perspective uh, when we come to the discussion points of Mission Log. And then it'll be interesting to see where we land here at the end of what we do here on every single Mission Log episode where we look at, does this episode withstand the test of time? Does it hold up? And then finally, do we find or have we mined any morals, meanings, or messages from the episode? So um, let's start with you, John, because I know that uh, we had, again, a very robust discussion about differing, uh, you know, just kind of like differing opinions uh, on the message of this episode. But let's see how it lands for you. 
I, first of all, I can't wait to hear what other people have to say about the decisions that were made in this episode. I look forward to that conversation spilling over online and hearing back from people. Now, one of the faults that I find with this episode is that in a way, it wraps itself up almost too neatly with this very clear reveal that both sides can't be trusted. Both are the, you know, quote unquote, bad guy and Voyager just needs to get the hell out of there. You know, Janeway gets burned and justifiably feels so. But what if she'd gotten away with it? What if, by creating a compromise, she had gained a tactical advantage and still violated her own sense of principle? We're, well, wait a minute, dare I say, we're getting dangerously close to Captain Sisko territory here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but, I would like to have seen if that could play out differently or better with someone like Janeway. Like what happens when that actually reveals itself and she has to face those consequences. But in this case, it's like, nope, you guys can't be trusted. You guys tried to blow us up. We're gone. And that is a very convenient end to an episode like this. Otherwise, this could just keep going on and on and on and on. And Voyager isn't the show that does that. Is that a fault or is it just the convenience of the way this show is made? You know, and then another thing that I find a little strange here, the Seska pregnancy. Uh, Too soap opera-y for you? I, well, it, we're just kind of a letdown from the huge soap opera moment a couple episodes ago. Yeah. You know, what, what was a shock ending for the previous episode or a couple of previous episodes back becomes this footnote here because it's not Chakotay's child. I mean, much ado about nothing. And I, it, it's not like Chakotay wouldn't figure that out eventually, <laughs> you know, depending on how she comes back with this child. So it, it was just a weird way to just kind of slip in this little correction it felt like uh so that that was odd to have such a build-up for the uh the reveal in maneuvers mm-hmm. so but the things that i said at the start of our last segment still hold true here um to me this is a very good episode in that it continues the world building of the delta quadrant it gives some depth and nuance to their plight it may fall short in the respect that, you know, once the trade plan is revealed, there's not much elsewhere to go. We're back at the beginning. But then maybe that's the point. Maybe Janeway tried something new, but it wasn't a help. And you just got to live to fight another day and try to get another day closer to home. I think giving her the moral dilemma that we did to violate her principles, to try to make this trade, to make a bad decision about who she would ally with. And like I said before, the arc of seeing Janeway listen to her crew and get good moments out of other crew members in doing so, I think those really elevate this episode. Mm -hmm. So even though I'm not deeply in love with any of the Kazon storylines at this point, I think this is one of the strongest uses of them that we've had. So uh, if we minimize the other Kazon stuff, I would be perfectly happy to let this stand out at the top of those stories that involve them. So, yeah, I think it does hold up quite well. 
What about you? I mean, I agree with your points, and I really do like like where they are with the Kazon right now. And I would I would probably have to say, yeah, I would say yes. Uh, this episode holds up, if for anything. And I, I like the way that you phrased it. You know, this is the world building that we that we enjoy seeing. You know, the the expansion of kind of like this narrative that's the Delta Quadrant. But for me, mm-hmm. you know, and and I've espoused kind of like you know the credit that I want to give Neelix, but the MVP of this episode for me is Chakotay. I mean. Um, mm. The way that he was written, the way that he was framed, and the way that he was not just—he wasn't contentious towards Janeway. You know, he was a very calm, sound reasoning board that gave her at least the opportunity to think abstractly, creatively, and and challenged her with the whole, you are a little too— you're too stodgy and too set into entrenched with your Starfleet ways that you're not looking at things creatively to do the one thing that you wanted, you know, you promised to do all along, and that's to get your crew home. That's your first responsibility as a captain to bring your crew safely home. Can, can I interrupt for just sure, a second? Sure. Because I, I, I think what's nice about what you just said is, it, to me, it's Chakotay doing that from a, you know, logistical a uh, procedural way, but it's Tuvok who makes that personal, right? Um, and I and I love having both of those sounding boards there. But to your point, I, I think we get more new and fresh, and almost like a relief by getting that from Chicote here. Mm-hmm. So yeah, carry on. But Sorry. you were getting the yeah. uh, that the triumvirate dynamic, you know, with the ethos, pathos, and mm-hmm. logos. You know, especially yeah. now, you know, where yeah. they've. I think that they've. I think Jerry Taylor in this episode unlocked or decoded something about Chakotay we haven't seen yet, and I found it just so incredibly effective. That being said, and, I, and as good as I think as this episode is, I think that this story, this content of this story is just a little – too little, too late, maybe. Because mm. the Janeway versus the Maquis drama, we saw that with Hogan, we saw that with Jonas at the very beginning, you know, with, you know, in the eulogy or post the eulogy. And I think that if we saw that more consistently throughout the first season, then I think that it would have given this version of Chicote more agency and maybe more believable motivations for like Seska or Dalby. And I just mentioned Hogan and Jonas. I mean, these are Maquis that we actually now know. You know, that actually mm-hmm. affect the story, that give us a little bit more of that fabric that we want from the Maquis relationship that was built from, well, I should say that wasn't built from Caretaker moving forward. And I think that that's a, it was a hugely lost opportunity. But now that we see these characters and their motivations and say, hey, you know what? No, Janeway doesn't speak for us. We would rather survive than, than abide by her non-democratic principles of Starfleet policy. Right, because mm-hmm. they're like we're not Starfleet. She doesn't speak for us. Who said that she did? We didn't take a vote because she said very clearly at the very beginning, "This is not a democracy." So what is it? Right. Exactly. So that you know, that's <laughs> again that the pause is you know fill in the blank. I think also that the grim and gritty reality of the Delta Quadrant in the pre nine eleven era of storytelling. It's just that it's not quite there for me from the environment and the desperation that I think this this particular series needs. Now, I know that it's going uh, up against or is in tandem with Deep Space Nine at this time. And Deep Space Nine at this time is dark. You know, it's trending mm-hmm. dark. And I don't think it needs to be dark. I just think that you need to feel certain more specific points of desperation in Voyager storytelling to get that whole point across that they are completely cut off from any type of assistance from the Federation. That these, you know, that these species uh, that she's trying to treat with are trap doors at every turn. And especially now with the trade looking at 
it from a, wow, these are Starfleet-esque you know, types of allies in the Delta Quadrant that mm-hmm. I feel that I can actually negotiate with because they're cultured, intelligent, you know, and for lack of a better term, at least outwardly appearing someone that I can deal with, you know, from a cultural mm-hmm. standpoint. But it's not true. And I like that those trapdoors are actually, you know, causing her to fall through some of these decision-making processes that put her more at risk and educating her saying like, you know what, not everything is at face value. Not everything is what it seems. But because you have the opening sequence of the Kazon attack being so incredibly dire and, and, and just beating Voyager to a pulp at the very beginning and then cutting to a scene where everything is standard and there's mm-hmm. no action, no drama, no nothing – it kind of takes the wind out of the sails of like the just the, the sheer kind of like desperation that you were feeling at the beginning. Not even the stars yeah. are moving, yeah. you know, in those scenes. Yeah. <laughs> so that is there's odd. a weird tonal yeah. um, divorce uh, from what uh, what you should be should be feeling throughout the course of this episode versus you know what's actually being delivered. And I think that is a difference between pre and post nine eleven storytelling. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. Well, I mean, look, morals, meanings, messages. I, I think this is one of those episodes where there's a lot to chew on and, and we can kind of talk about who learned what in here. I, I think overall, and I kind of teased it a moment ago in, in my uh, my wrap up, it, can you keep your nose clean when you violate your own principles? And in doing so, a lie with an enemy. <laughs> you know, she's choosing here between a known enemy and the unknown that may or may not be an enemy, but presents itself as a friend. And, and if they're not an enemy, yeah, then someone whose behavior forces you to look the other way. How much of our own discomfort are we willing to overlook when we are convenienced by the outcome? And that is the problem that Janeway faces. I, I think in a way you can kind of look at this from the very beginning and Given how things play out, given where we are at the end, which is right where we were at the beginning, we don't have an ally in the trade because why would we? And we don't have uh, an ally in the Kazon because that's just apparently a non-starter at this point. Does that even vindicate Janeway in a way? Does it say that her position for the beginning, like, no, we're just going to keep doing what we're doing, was actually the right way to go? And everything that happened between her deciding to reach out for an alliance up to the end was a waste of time. Yeah. I I mean, (laughs) you know, not, not saying necessarily was, maybe it was a learning process in the meantime. Uh, But I think Janeway's principle, it's very obvious where she has to land at the end. Mavis says, how can this one ship hope to survive? And Janeway says, not by making deals with executioners. So in that respect, she is right that, look, they may die on their own out there, but at least they're not violating their own sense of principle and throwing in with the ones who would be anathema to everything that they stand for. I'm going to cut Janeway some slack here in that respect. (laughs) Bring it home for us, Norm. I mean, I understand. That's a very, very salient point. At the same time, though, I don't think it needs to be a Starfleet principle of doing the right thing by your people. I mean, I think that's a moral principle, Mm. and I think that is just cutting the fabric of knowing what right and wrong is. But like when Janeway says at the end, in a region where shifting allegiances are commonplace, we we have to have something stable to rely on, and we do. 
the principles and ideals of the Federation, as far as I'm concerned, those are the best allies we could have. Are they, though? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because, again, she is speaking definitively for every single person on that ship, whether they do or don't believe in Federation principles. I agree with the sentiment, but I don't agree with how she landed at that conclusion. She had the chance to establish the stability that she needed with Kulla to get her crew the alliance she needs to protect them in the Delta Quadrant. But because of his misogyny alone that broke down diplomatic negotiations, which begs the question, how hard was she really willing to fight to get the crew what they needed in order to protect them to get home? That's what I really need to know. I don't think the moral of this episode is what I've learned. It's what Janeway continues to kind of yield to, and that's the indoctrination Mm. of the Starfleet way. And maybe this is where I actually do find the moral of the story. It's the irresistible force versus the immovable object. In this model, the irresistible force is the unknown of the Delta Quadrant versus the immovable object, which is Janeway's unwavering allegiance to Starfleet protocol. And then maybe I had the see Timmy moment, you know, it's a great moral, it's a great meaning and a great message to land on. But uh-huh. is it realistic given the nature of where Voyager is, a man saying is in the Delta Quadrant, who Janeway yeah. is responsible for and how she's going to realistically, the key word in this fantasy science fiction realm is to think about things realistically, how she's realistically making her decisions that represent the needs of the many and not the few or the one. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. If you'd like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord. Our website is missionlogpodcast.com, and for more Star Trek news and discussion, visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, Threshold. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Schabel. Tune in next time when we meet a new Kazon boss with tall blue hair, you guessed it, Mosh Simpson. transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com listen. Shopify.com listen.